tonight, you can turn to Revelation chapter 9, the ninth chapter of Revelation. So, between last week and this week, now there is war in Ukraine, it appears. We only got nine chapters into this book before we're reminded of how unstable our world really is, if we didn't know before. Another war. More conflict, more death, more suffering. It never stops, but it will. It will. Look in verse 13 of chapter 8 from last week. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we saw last week that the first four trumpets affected the spheres uh, surrounding, supporting human life, but the last three target rebellious humanity itself directly. All throughout Revelation, that term we see in verse 13, those who dwell on the earth, refers to people in rebellion against God and His Son, while the church always belongs to heaven, regardless of where they are living or dwelling on the earth. We'll see more evidence of this tonight in the fifth trumpet. But God is more than clear in these increasing judgments of the necessity, beloved, of repentance. God is patient and merciful in this regard. He's attempting to drive people to their need to be reconciled to Him. And we might think, well, isn't that, isn't these, aren't these judgments a heavy-handed way to do that? Not if we consider, I mean, they are, but whether or not that's negative depends on what awaits rebels if they die in rebellion against God. In light of eternity, if it's a heavy hand that drives us to Jesus, then it's worth the weight of that hand, right? <clears throat> the world is not going to steadily improve. It's not going to increasingly get better. There is no path to true peace and safety and security here on the earth. The world is falling apart because God is pulling it apart at the seams in preparation for his son's return, just as he did in Egypt with the plagues. The exact same thing, but on a global scale. We live in the days of God's clearest warnings to humanity, and not just as bystanders. We aren't simply watching all of this happen. We are missionaries in the middle of all of this happening. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bring about repentance and salvation, delivering us from this world and the evil that is without and within us. So let me pray and we'll look at the passage together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've chosen to reveal to us. We pray, Father, that we would be diligent in days to come, to stay in your word, to walk by your spirit, to walk by faith and not by sight as we try to make sense of the things that go on around us. Father, please help me preach tonight. Fill me with your spirit for this passage to bring out of it what you breathed into it for your people. God, I ask that you would enable everyone present to hear your word, to believe it. God, would you be with us now, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Read the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. 
Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, or Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. At the sounding of the fifth trumpet, now in verse 1, a star falls from heaven to earth and releases the horrors of what verse 12 will call the first of the three rows or woes from chapter 8, verse 13. The fallen star is given the key to the bottomless pit in verse 1, which indicates the royal authority he's been given to command and control what comes out of this abyss, as it's translated. In verse 11, we find he's the king and the angel of this abyss. Beloved, he is the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan that John will actually see cast out of heaven and thrown down to earth in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. This falling down or being thrown down was the result of the messianic assault of Jesus on Satan's kingdom that we saw when his disciples, we literally saw it, When his disciples were casting out demons in his name, Jesus said he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, here John sees the fallen star that opens the abyss and out comes smoke like the smoke of a great furnace that billows up to darken the sun in the air. In verse 2, remember, as the prince of the power of the air, in Ephesians 2, 2, Satan has been given the authority to throw a blinding haze, a darkening haze over all creation. From this smoke now arises locusts on the earth in verse 3 that are given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Their appearance is like horses prepared for battle. Their wings sound like chariots in verses 7 and 9. The eighth plague of locusts in Egypt, if you remember, blackened the land and ate every plant of the land and all the fruit on the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. But the prophet Joel also saw a vision of a locust army, the likes of which had never been seen, who were also summoned by a trumpet on the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This army was also accompanied by the darkening of the sun as it appeared to charge like war horses, sounding like chariots in Joel 2, 3 through 5 and 10. So the influence of Joel's vision on John here is very clear, but the sphere of this locust army's destruction is much different than Joel's in Israel or Judah and is much different than the ones in Egypt. This horde is summoned by the angel of the abyss and attacks people. This plague is not agricultural, it's spiritual. This locust army announced by the fifth trumpet symbolizes or represents the demonic torment that is unleashed on the minds and souls of those who dwell on the earth. In verse 
8.13. Those who do not have the seal of God's name on their foreheads, on their minds and souls, so to speak. These locusts have tremendous power to destroy, but even this is limited by God. We find in verse 4 that they aren't allowed to harm earth's vegetation or trees, but only those who do not have the seal of God. And those having the seal, again, takes us back to chapter 7, and those who are sealed. They cannot harm all humanity. They can only harm a portion. The anguish these locusts inflict is not physical. It's not an affliction that's physical that all humanity experiences, both believers and unbelievers. It only affects those. It only harms those who are without God's seal. And still, <coughs> excuse me, they aren't allowed to kill them. They're only allowed to harm them, and only for a period of five months. But the torture they inflict seems to be a fate worse than death. For relief, these tortured ones desire death, but in verse 6, death flees from them. And so this vision shows us how tragic it is to serve Satan. For it is the angel of the abyss, the fallen star himself, who unleashes this demonic horde on unbelievers. But he doesn't do it to inflict his enemies, the servants of God. They're sealed, they're protected. He does it to torture his own allies, those who dwell on the earth, who later, in Revelation 14, 14 through 17, instead of being sealed by God, will receive the mark of the beast and worship his blasphemous image. Torture is how the devil rewards his loyal subjects. And the relief that these tortured ones thought they could find in death is denied them. The evil spirits poisoning them are forbidden from taking their lives. Beloved, this is happening all around us. Don't look for demonic oppression only in the dark things, only in scary stories and monsters and all these things. Realize that demons are torturing those who don't belong to Jesus by making their lives so miserable they want to die. That doesn't always look like, again, like scary eyes and deep voices and all these things. This is not the only way they work. This is spiritual oppression in the last days, beloved. Paul told us about this in Ephesians 2, what we're battling against all the time. They are limited, yes, they are restrained, but they're still deadly. The text shows that even with the limitations imposed on them, they have great power. That is what the description of their physical attributes is meant to show us. If you try to make these helicopters or tanks, the metaphors break down and the goalposts always move. Always. Never fails. They appear as locusts, which symbolize their power to destroy, as has been the case all throughout the Bible, their ability to turn a place like Eden into a desert, as Joel says in chapter 2, verse 3 of his letter. After all, look at the name of their king, in verse 11, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, the destroyer, beloved. They sting like scorpions in verses 5 and 10, showing the intensity of the pain they inflict on their victims. This is much worse than a literal sting, beloved. This is spiritual torment and affects the whole person who does not have God's seal. In verse 7, what looks like crowns of gold and appears to be human faces, signifies the intelligence and authority they have to carry out their mission. They're not just, you know, blobby monsters. They, they are intelligent. They're carrying out a mission. The forces of darkness in our world are not to be trifled with flippantly. They are deadly. They are smart. 
and dangerous and evil. We ought not to get involved in these things on any level. Right? Don't invite these things. Don't play games. Don't invite trouble. Right? It sounds silly, but young people stay away from Ouija boards, all these kinds of things. We're playing with things we ought not to mess with at all. At all. And yes, the duration and severity of what they can inflict is limited, yes. But this is still, remember, an expression of God's wrath being poured out on humanity on a whole new level now after the ascension of Jesus. It's called the first woe in verse 12. So, excuse me, the seals and trumpets epitomize economic, agricultural, socio-political woes, the terror that civilizations like Rome would experience in the coming centuries after this was written. But those things don't represent in full measure the torment that people will experience as a result of the fifth trumpet's demonic locust army, the destruction they cause. This is happening as we speak. Look at verse 12 through 21 now. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. We've heard about this, these four bound ones earlier in Revelation. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. Note that language. Note that. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their Thefts. So the end of the first woe is announced between the fifth and sixth trumpets here, while the second woe passes before the seventh trumpet sounds. The third woe is said to be soon to come later in chapter 11, verse 14. The sixth trumpet now, which is the second of those three woes from 813, is the last warning blast of judgment for humanity. This is it. At the sounding of the sixth trumpet, a voice from that golden altar where the prayers of the church were offered to God shouts a command. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Notice this now. This command marks the end of the period where God's judgment is restrained, limited, because it rescinds the earlier command that four angels at the four corners of the earth must hold back the four winds until God's servants had been sealed In chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So the trumpet judgments have escalated from the destruction of one-third of the land, sea, and rivers, which included human death and sky, to the mental and spiritual torture of unbelievers, to the slaughter now of one-third of all human population. 
When John wrote Revelation, the Euphrates River was considered to be the eastern border of the Roman Empire. That's how they drew out the Euphrates. They feared, in some sense, what was on the other side of that border, the Parthians and their mighty cavalry of archers. That's what the Parthians were known for. But for Jewish people, the Euphrates was the northern frontier of Palestine. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians had all crossed it at one time to invade Israel, one time or another. In Scripture, the Euphrates was a source of oppression. It was a place of exile. Beyond the Euphrates, if you remember, was Nineveh, right, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Babylon, that carried Judah away into captivity. They were defeated eventually, of course, by God's hand through the Medo-Persians. He had resettled his people in the land of promise, but the prophets of the exile still talked about Those immediate threats, foreign powers like Gog, who in Ezekiel 38 would sweep down from the northeast, from the Euphrates, and afflict God's people. The vision of the sixth trumpet does take the more immediate threat of the Parthians into account for John's immediate audience. But the horsemen in John's vision are way more terrifying than a mounted army. John reminds us that we're still in the symbolic world of prophetic visions when we hear him say in verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. When John refers to the Euphrates in the context of a prophetic vision, we have to recognize its symbolic character instead of trying to press it for literal geography. Again, when we do that, the goalposts are always moving. We have to admit that every war is said to be the last one. Every invasion, every do you remember towards the end of last year when it was about September and uh, all of these these rabbis in Israel had gotten together and decided that this was it. And and the Messiah was going to appear on Rosh Hashanah. And do you know how many times we've heard stories like that in our lives? Remember when Israel became a nation again in 1948? I wasn't there. Most of us weren't. But that was it, remember? The, the 40 years from now, because that's one generation, everything's going to come together and collide. And so that's why you had that again, that 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. We are 33 years past that. We're, we're late. And so you have to move it all the time because you're trying to nail down things God did not nail down for us, right? In this invasion, it's not the riders. It's the horses that are causing all the fear. Do we see that when we look in the text? The four angels that are released to kill a third of mankind, a portion of mankind here in verse 15, are represented prophetically by this massive army of 200 million. Again, in prophetic terms in verse 16. In verses 17 and 18, their heads are like lion's heads, fire and smoke and sulfur, brimstone, literally like Sodom and Gomorrah come out of their mouths. These are the plagues that kill their victims in verse 18. Please notice that. The locusts of the fifth trumpet can only harm earth dwellers. The horses of the sixth can kill. Think about that for a minute. If the locusts are supposed to be tanks or missiles or anti-aircraft guns or whatever it is, do those things merely harm people? You get a bruise from being hit by a missile or a sting? No, you get killed. You get disintegrated. This is spiritual torment, beloved, in the fifth trumpet and the locust. There's a difference between the torments. That's what we're meant to see. The torments of the locusts and the torments of the horses. This is the idea of progression or escalation in judgment. As time goes on in the demonic host, things get progressively worse. They will climax 
We haven't seen anything yet. Just before the end, when the restraints on Satan himself are taken off, as we'll read later in Revelation. Look at their tails in verse 19. Think of where John is drawing this language. Think of why he's seeing what he's seeing. Their tails are like serpents with heads. It's what their tails are like, showing us what? That their power to kill resembles and comes from the ancient serpent, the dragon, who is called the devil and Satan in Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2. This is the spiritual venom of the enemy that kills, beloved. Much like the fifth, the sixth trumpet shows us the release of all this pent-up demonic venom that torments and now even kills a massive multitude of people, a whole third of mankind, in verse 15, representative of a massive number of them at least, demonic oppression gets worse and more deadly as time marches on, as we get closer and closer to the return of our Lord. Again, if you picture them like a Rottweiler chained to a tree, the less you feed that thing, the more that thing realizes it's beaten, It is going to get more erratic, more violent, more hungry. How can demons cause the death of so many people? What do they do? Or how, probably in the same sense, the serpent of old killed in Eden. This is our revelation. We talk about it as the, the capstone of biblical prophecy or biblical revelation. It's all here. The serpent of old killed in Eden, according to Jesus. Murder by lies. Right? By deception. In John 8, 44, what does Jesus call Satan? A murderer from the beginning. Who did he murder? Right? Who, who did Satan kill in the garden? At the beginning. He didn't eat anybody. He didn't burn them up or something. What did he do? He lied to them so that they gave in to the temptation to disobey God's word. In effect, killing them. Bringing about the curse, Jesus said. Killing, in a sense, all mankind. And beloved, think about it. As time goes on, even from when you were young, have you ever seen something on the news or in real life or heard of something and thought, how could someone be so evil? The evil of mankind knows no limits, no bounds. How could somebody do something so awful, so horrible? Have you ever found yourself saying, I've never even heard of something like that before? Right. These are the last days. This trumpet is sounding. The woes are only going to intensify. Remember, Revelation is structured around three cycles of seven judgments. That's the structure. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. These are deliberately connected so that John can accomplish his purpose. He's trying to show us the advance of history and how God is going to bring all things to a close from different angles, right? Emphasizing different things at different times. Later in 16, 12 through 14, when the sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates, John sees three unclean spirits there. There, they have the appearance of frogs and emerge from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet to do what? To deceive the kings of the world so that they gather for the last great battle Against God and his church, the last great push to completely wipe, wipe the church, wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth. Hatred for the church is mounting. It has always been mounting all the time. But there will come a day 
when Satan is let loose from his prison to do what he's kept from doing right now and bring all the world together to eradicate Jesus and his church from this world. We may see those days. I do not know. We may see them. But let's just try to pull back for a moment from the reality we are blessed to live in in America. And it is a blessing, make no mistake. But let's pull back from it for a minute because this isn't real. This isn't permanent. The freedom we enjoy today is an anomaly that could be lost in a second. Right? I mean, look at, look at what's happening around us now. You know, look at Russia invades Ukraine, allegedly. Man, I'm so sick and tired of news. Right? Like a story comes out, then the story gets retracted, then it gets changed, and nothing is ever done, like to, to justify half-truths and things. The, the story of the, uh, how many of you saw the great story of the 13 Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island? And when the Russians said, you know, you have to surrender, we're gonna kill you, they didn't surrender. How many of you have seen that story in the news? And they, um, you know, they, they said an expletive to the Russians and then the Russians bombed the island and all 13 were killed. Turns out that didn't happen. They surrendered. I mean, you, 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 you can find the news. I think they said what they said, but then ultimately they surrendered. The video came out from the Ukrainians. The story was told the way that it was. Then the Russians said, no, 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 we have it on video. They surrendered. Then the Ukrainian defense minister verified that they surrendered. It, it, you know, the, the, the ghost of Kiev, we, we don't know. This gentleman, the, the pilot that allegedly has shot down all these jets, now the story's coming out, is, is that real? Like, where are all the downed planes? So it just, again, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Don't hear me saying something stupid. I'm just saying what, there's no telling what's going on in the world anymore. But it's bad. Right? Ukraine was probably pretty free. And then Russia invades and now you have allegedly citizens having to take up arms and people here that are so against the Second Amendment are cheering them on. The people asking that question, why should the right to bear arms not be infringed upon? Well, look at the Ukraine. That's why. Right? But strangely, very strangely, the side here that hates the Second Amendment and hates nationalism of any kind is rallying behind Ukraine in doing what they would hate you for doing, right? So I, I don't know, right? But listen, the, the, the freedom that we enjoy in our world can be lost in a second. What you and I have to surrender ourselves to is that we aren't here to keep that from happening. Right? That's not the mission the church has been given. Lest we would fight against God's will for us. Right? We are here to proclaim the gospel that saves from all of this. That changes one's destiny from torment and death to eternal life and freedom. These horses also wield death by the evil and sinful deceit that pours from their mouths like hot, rancid, destructive sulfur. I don't believe this is merely China attacking Israel. It's much more widespread. These are demonic beings, symbolic of the host of hell itself, wreaking havoc on people throughout the earth. Whenever our Lord Jesus defeated a demon, 
during his earthly ministry, they were revealed to be cruel. They were like parasites on people, intent on destroying their hosts. What would those demons scream? Do you remember? Especially with the Gadarene demoniac. Don't, we beg you, don't send us into the abyss where they're imprisoned, right? Where they've all been waiting to be unleashed. And now they have been, but under the reign of Christ. So as the sixth seal gave us a preview of the disasters that will characterize the disillusion of the first heavens and the earth, the sixth trumpet gives us a preview of the increase of satanic deception and demonic torment that facilitates the expansion of violence and death and despair in humanity. Now, as we think about all of that and all of it mounting, we might think that the crumbling of law and order or the eventual destabilization of civilization altogether, the basic end of safety in the world, would disturb people enough to realize they need to get right with God. You would think that idolaters would lose confidence in the works of their hands, as we see in 20 through, or in, uh, yes, in 20 through 21 here. You think they'd want to be cured of their desire to worship demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. John there is recalling Daniel's rebuke of Belshazzar in Daniel 5.23 and the emphasis of the Old Testament on senseless idols throughout the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah. But these things don't bring about massive repentance. They don't. In fact, the scripture teaches us that even as demons utterly destroy their own worshipers in complete despair and violent conflict, those who survive the warning blast of judgment, millions upon millions, the majority of humanity, do not repent of anything. Not their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts in verse 21. Even the sixth trumpet blast of judgment will fall on deaf ears. If it were not for the sovereignty of God, we would be fighting a losing battle. As Sam Storm says, these 20 and 21 are some of the saddest and most depressing verses in all of Scripture. This is, in his commentary, the message of Revelation, Michael Wilcock writes this. This is a great summary of what we see here in chapter 9. The death-dealing horsemen of Trumpet 6 are not tanks and planes, or not only tanks and planes, They are also cancers and road accidents and malnutrition and terrorist bombs and peaceful demises in nursing homes. Yet the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still do not repent of their idolatry, the centering of their lives on anything rather than God or of the evils which inevitably flow from it. Excuse me. They hear of pollution, of inflation, of dwindling resources, of blind politicians and will not admit that the first four trumpets of God are sounding. In the end, they themselves are affected by these troubles, and for one reason or another, life becomes a torment. The locusts are out, trumpet five is sounding, but they will not repent. Not even when the angels of the Euphrates rise to the summons of trumpet six, and the cavalry rides out to slay by any kind of destruction, not necessarily war, a friend or a relative, a husband or a wife, not even in bereavement will they Repent. That's the end of that quote. So, 
Maybe then, in light of news like that, maybe we should just pack it up, hunker down and pray for daylight, right? Maybe we should just hide until Jesus comes. I mean, if, if, if there's no point to evangelism, if most everybody's going to reject it, beloved, not everyone. Not everyone. Look, this is what Satan can do. And again, the, the, the way I understand it, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet. But this is what Satan can do. But he was not ever, is not now, and never will be any match for the power of Jesus. Is there anything we can do? Is there anything that can be done that is successful in making people repent and see their need for God? Is there anything that does have the power to change people's hearts and wake people up? Anything. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Judgment warns. The gospel saves. Where increasing judgment will not turn people to Jesus, the gospel will. Since the demonic torment of God's judgment does not bring about repentance, the church needs to realize how increasingly dependent we are on the gospel, which is the power of God that brings about salvation, to accomplish his objective for which he's left us in the world. Nothing else the church does will be successful in turning hearts to God. Only the gospel can do that. If these trumpet blasts are not sufficient to wake people up, but to deepen them in the sin of their rejection against God, we better stop thinking we can come up with things that might do it and just trust the simple gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. So we better shore up our noise and our action and our mouths so that Truly, we know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That's how important this is. That's what's at stake here. And whether or not we're committed fundamentally in our faith and in our practice to the centrality of the gospel. Only the gospel has the power to bring about repentance. Do we understand this? So we don't just need the gospel in the church to live the life of faith. They need it in the world in order to have faith. To be born again. Notice, think about this. The wickedness and evil and pain and wrath in the world doesn't move us to get more busy about the proclamation of the gospel, does it? No, but when when we found out Ukraine was being invaded, I don't think anybody was like, oh my goodness, we got to get missionaries out. We've got to get to the unreached that haven't heard the name of Jesus because Jesus is coming, right? No, no, no. We, we probably all went to our charts and we're like, okay, so if this army invades here and then this one invades here, well, that one invaded that one in like the, the sixth. So maybe we have, you see, we, we, that's the danger here. We need the gospel in the church to motivate us sufficiently to proclaim the gospel in the first place. Only the gospel has the power of salvation for anyone, right? If nothing else will do it, if nothing else is going to do it, 
The plight of humanity in light of these trumpets should urge us to proclaim the gospel all the more. He is coming, beloved. He is coming. So don't, don't look at Ukraine and just hunker, hunker down and pray for daylight because the end might be beginning. We, we, we keep hearing that, you know. The book of Revelation is starting to unfold before our very eyes. Beloved, that started in the first century. Right? Again, just keep moving the goalposts. Right? Or just trust the text. Ukraine should stir us up to proclaim the gospel more. Because now even more people are dying. And are going to continue dying. Right? That's, we cannot control these events. We, we can't control them. But we aren't here for that. This is, this is not a test to see if we're going to figure everything out before the end. Well, beloved, then what? So once you have everything figured out and every I dotted and every T crossed, then what? Right? When we see these things, it's like when one of the most powerful kind of unsettling moments in the ministry of Jesus was when They came to him and said, what of the blood of our countrymen that Pilate has mingled with the sacrifices? What do you say about that? And Jesus says, well, what I say about that is unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up another one. Or, you know, the tower in Siloam that fell and crushed those innocent people. I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Disaster in our world that encompasses the torment and the brutal murdering power of the demon whore that's been set free from the abyss. Beloved, when we see these things take place, our minds need to go immediately to God's desire for people to repent and the means he has given to bring that about. Right? It, it, don't let what's happening there drive you inward. Let it drive you to people. To people. What if, what if there's ten more years left on humanity's clock? What if five? What if three? What if one? What if, what if 367 days from now we're in glory? That sounds phenomenal. But what about everybody else? What about everybody else? I, we don't deserve to be there. Why do we get a free pass? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bring about repentance and salvation. That, that's, that's why it's central. Again, you and I can agree to disagree on the details here. What we shouldn't disagree on is the point of them. They're meant to warn people. That they need to repent and get right with God. But then God says, this will not awaken them. They won't repent. But God has already told us how it is that people repent. We think if we threaten people with enough hell, they'll get scared enough to get saved. And I, I, there are times when that happens. You know, there, there are. But for the most part, beloved, that's, this is not going to do it. We, we, the stuff this horrible isn't going to wake anybody up. Right? Jesus said, 
Unless somebody's raised from the, even if someone is raised from the dead, you won't believe. Right? When he's telling the parable of Lazarus and the, the rich man. So apparently there isn't power to bring about repentance in these amazing, visible, horrible, or wonderful things. The power is in a simple message. And if we don't trust it, we will fail. Our lampstand will go out. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bring about repentance and salvation. Whether it's in Moundsville or Ukraine or Tunisia or the Sudan or or Indonesia or Moldova or wherever it is, right? Only the gospel can bring this about. Delivering us from the world and the evil that's without and within us. If the warning trumpets of God's judgment won't bring about repentance, we have to stop thinking that our little ideas and plans and strategies can do it. Right? We, we, we've got to learn to trust this gospel to do all of the work. Right? One of my favorite sermons of all time, you and I are not chefs. We are butlers. Our job is not to prepare the food, but to get it to the table without messing it up. We are proclaimers. Beloved, that's all we are. We can't make people repent. We can't even make our own children come to Christ. But the gospel can. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So more word, more proclamation, more people hearing. That's how we do this. And don't fall into the trap of relying on whether or not the gospel is successful by whether or not people are coming forward during invitations. This, Beloved, it is increasingly unlikely that this will be the venue where people come to Christ. And I'm not just trying to pad my stats. I don't press invitations. You've seen that. I don't, I don't think they're sinful or something. I just don't, I, I don't press it. That's not what I'm relying on, right? Jesus is going to build his church. I don't have to be worried about this. What I have to be focused on and, and worried about, so to speak, would be what have I said? What have I said that, and it isn't even about being precise and accurate, like, like, Maybe some of us don't share the gospel as much because we're afraid we'll get it wrong. You, you, you won't get it wrong. Do you really think God is so careless as to say, well, I tried to wake him up. I'll leave it in the hands of, uh, this small amount of folks to, I, you know, hopefully be successful. That, that's not how things are playing out. We may mean very well. We don't have more power than the trumpet judgments of God or the seals to bring about salvation and repentance. We don't. So there's one thing that has the power to bring about salvation. We must believe this. We must believe this. The eminence of God's, the eminence, sorry, of God's judgment, the extent of which it's still limited right now, should urge us to stop trusting in literally anything but this message of salvation to accomplish God's saving purpose in this world. We are the people of the gospel. We have no use to the world but the gospel. Right? Churches, we, we mean very well. We try to do so much to help with every woe in our culture and our society. Beloved, there are tons of organizations that do this. The, 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 the most, um, worthwhile point of the church is the proclamation of this message. If we can do that by uniting with other efforts to help, I'm not against those things. 
I'm saying those things won't save people, and we are here to see people saved. We have no power but the gospel. Without it, we literally have nothing, but with it, with it, hell can't stop us. Didn't Jesus say this? Our souls are secure with it. Our destiny is fixed with it. The enemy is ultimately powerless against it. Salvation will come. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, beloved. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Come to love the message of the gospel and trust it with everything we are.